and was only suitable for people aged 18 or over will almost certainly have an adult theme and might well contain sex or violence which are quite graphic. It may also contain explicit language, including sexual swear words. Thanks for listening. Uh, but here's what his revelation comes to him. He's kind of got all this stuff, like, uh, touching, wiping, mourning of the animals. Not wiping, whipping. whipping. Yeah. <laughs> also, yeah, not touch, also not touching. I am, I am dyslexic. I, I hope I'm not having like, a stroke. Do it live! Fuck it! Do it live! And an atheist almost always becomes supporters of eugenics and abortion. A swine is hungry for nuts. Jesus hates him too. Satan is real. Being a Satanist is an open declaration of revolt against counterproductive received wisdom and mindless rogue traditions. Decapitate her head off. We're done. Done. We're done. done. Obama! Welcome to the Godless Revolution. Today is Monday, December 5th. It's December already. I know. This is episode 135. I'm Dan Ellis, joined in studio by... Ryan Duffy. And... Grant Larimer. ...is our guest host again this evening. Thank you very much, Grant. Anytime. Happy to help. And we are very excited tonight to have as a guest on the show, Ms. Danielle Moscato. How are you, Danielle? I'm great. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to have you on the show. I've, I've wanted to have you on the show... For quite some time to talk about a whole bunch of different things and saw your tweet go viral and I was like, okay, we've got an opening this week. That would be the perfect opportunity and timing. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just worked out wonderfully. Um, earlier today, I've been on, gosh, I've been on a bunch of stuff. I was on NPR this morning and, uh, Karen Hunter and, uh, a couple of others, but I'm, I'm really, I'm really glad to do this. I'm, this is a perfect day for it. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm I'm really excited about this. Let's start by introducing you to the audience for those of you who may not know. Uh, what do you do in the atheist community? Uh, I'm a civil rights activist. I, I mostly focus on separation of religion and government and fighting for the rights of non-religious people uh, to be free from from political influence in, in our, our lives. Uh, that's kind of my main thing. I also work on a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, I, I am personally transgender, and while that's not my focus area, I also, by extension of that, uh, end up doing a whole lot of LGBTQ activism. Uh, I'm very into uh, abortion access and abortion rights, and also Black Lives Matter. Um, uh, if, if you know me, you might know me as the former director of public relations for American Atheists. Uh, I worked for Dave Silverman for several years uh, as his as his PR person. Uh, I'm also a musician. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah, I I was fortunate enough to be able to work with you during the American Atheists Convention here in Utah mm-hmm. in 2014, and of course saw you around all of the places before and after that and i just think you're a pretty swell person man i i think you're really great too <laughs> yeah uh, it was no it, seriously i mean it was because we had we had you know talked so much on the internet uh before i ever visited salt lake city and and met you and you know when we when we actually arrived to put on the conference and uh i i think you're great i think you do wonderful activism i love your show and um as i i'm really glad that we got to know each other that was a wonderful experience well, thank you very much. The feeling's very, very mutual. <laughs> Great. You're also a vegetarian. Yeah, I try to eat <laughs> vegan, but I travel a lot and it ends up 
it's not always possible. <laughs> but uh, yeah, animal rights, I, I didn't mention that in, in the beginning, but animal rights, uh, animal welfare and, and reducing animal suffering is also something that's very important to me. Um, a long time ago, I used to work uh, at an at a animal shelter at the Humane Society, um, and that's something that's I've carried with me since then. Yeah, I was just thinking back to the last time I actually saw you in person, and that was in Memphis, and uh, we went to that little catfish place and had hush puppies and and really good catfish and barbecue stuff. It was it was delicious, <laughs> but, but I know it was very difficult for you in finding food in Memphis as as a vegan. Yeah, so. <laughs> I, I well, I do I do make occasional exceptions. It depends on the situation. Like if I'm if I'm somewhere where there's some like signature food for that city. Um, I, I sometimes will make an exception just as a life experience for myself as a, as a human living to my fullest potential to say, this is something I want to have done in my life is try real Memphis barbecue. And like, you know, I, I don't make a habit of it, but I, I think that's important just as a person to, to experience interesting different things. And, and I do that too when I travel sometimes. I, I noticed you had made this post the other day and it was uh, linking to a story, and, and I apologize, I can't remember the initial uh, reporter's name, but it was for kind of an offbeat news media site. It was that somebody had taken a tweet rant or a tweet storm that you had created, uh, talking to or addressing sending tweets directed at Donald Trump. What was the impetus of that other than Donald Trump being a terrible fucking human being? Do you need more than that? I mean, I mean basically, what, what I was thinking when I saw this is i mean there there are so many problems in this country and in the world and i mean pe- people's lives are literally at stake with decisions that he's making and and just the idea that he is skipping intelligence briefings yeah. and that he's not really sure that he wants to move into the white house like just you you wanted this job you campaigned for this job you know and he's just not taking it seriously and i was i was i mean i remain very angry at him that that he's being so cavalier about this and so petty that his focus I mean, not that I begrudge the president-elect from, you know, taking a break in his role preparing to be president to, to watch some, you know, Saturday Night Live. But, I mean, <laughs> it's just – it sends a message when he, when he tweets about this bullshit that he has no passion for this job and that he wishes he had lost. And he just – he doesn't want to do this. And, you know, I mean, I can think of one person in particular who's much more qualified and who really did want this job. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, 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 who, just, who would that be? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely absurd. And uh, I, I was just so angry that, that he's just like, that's his focus right now. In seven weeks, you're going to be the president of the United States and you are upset that Alec Baldwin's parody of you is not up to snuff are you serious yeah. like you have work to do it's time to you know buckle down it's just you, you go look at president obama's twitter feed and and he writes about like equal equal pay for equal work you know for latina's day and he tweets about the you know the paris agreement for climate change and he, i mean this is what a, a politician at his level should be tweeting about if he's going to tweet the important things in the world that affect people and I just, 
I I had to say something, and and then once I started, I, I, I was like, <laughs> oh no, I've got more where that came from. <laughs> it just came out. But uh, I'm I'm so glad that it resonated with people. I've gotten I mean literally ten thousand plus emails in the wow. last day, uh, and I mean I haven't read them all. I've been looking trying to find out the media requests because I don't want to miss those. And I've, re- I've responded to many of them because I want to answer them, you know. But the amazing thing to me is how few of them are people who are upset at me or disagree with me. Almost none. I, I mean, I would say less than, less than half a percent is my guess of people who, you know, who are trashing me for this. It, it just blows me away how, how many people are like, this is exactly what I've been thinking. And someone finally said it. (laughs) I just, I mean, Trump, he's, he is not, he doesn't have public support. I think that's, that's something that especially makes me really upset. It's just the margin by which Hillary beat him in the popular vote compared with his attitude about how he's doing this. He is, he is governing or, or preparing to govern. He's signaling that he's going to govern on the basis that he has popular support, that he's doing the will of the people. And that's that's just not true. And I think it's it's really vital for us as activists to continually remind him of this and and call out these things when we see them as we see them before they they become codified into law and before you know this becomes normal. Uh, this is not normal. And I think that it's it's imperative that those of us on the left, those of us, and, and on the right, the Republicans who can't believe their ears either, continue to point out that this is not acceptable and, and hold him accountable for this stuff. So you mentioned that he ran for this job and it's a job he wanted. Do you think he actually really wanted the job? or like? No. It oh, seems yeah. to me that he didn't really want I'm, the job. He just ran to, to get his name out there more to set up some other venture after he eventually lost. Oh, absolutely. Oh, there's no question in my mind that he ran for his own enrichment and no other reason. Uh, actually, there's a wonderful article. Um, if you Google uh, just Michael Moore, Rolling Stone, Donald Trump, he wrote this great article. Michael Moore, the you know the director, did, and he knows. You know, I, I mean, he's pretty invested in politics, and he knows a lot of Hollywood people. And um, and anyway, he wrote this article where he said, "I'm not naming names, but." that the reason Donald Trump ran for president was because he was renegotiating his contract with NBC for The Apprentice, and he wanted to raise his public profile to give him a stronger negotiating position. But this completely blew up in his face because when he made his candidacy speech, when he, when he you know, declared that he's running for president, he, he called Mexican immigrants drug traffickers yeah. he he called them racists or uh, rapists excuse me and nbc was like whoa <laughs> we're not touching that with a 10 foot pole but i assume and, some of them are good yeah. people uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> but yeah so michael moore makes this claim that he, that he doesn't substantiate with with hard evidence but he says you know i have this i have proof of this that i can't share but he said uh yeah, that, that NBC was just like, well, we're canceling that show. We don't want anything to do with him. And then Trump was like, crap, because like now I have this campaign and no show. And, you know, at that point, I mean, generally when someone runs for president, you know, I mean, this is what Hillary did. This is what Bernie did. This is what every other Republican candidate did. 
when you run for president, you know, the first thing you do is you put together an exploratory committee. You find out how much, how, how much money the big donors are, are willing to back you on this. You start, you know, a super PAC. You uh, do opposition research. I mean, you know, you, there's a lot of work that goes into this before you ever file your paperwork um, to declare your run. And then, you know, a month later, you actually have your big speech where you announce it, quote unquote, announce, because, you know, once you file your paperwork, all the, all the media is prepared. But mm-hmm. Trump did none of this. I mean, he, as far as, as far as I've been able to find, he, he had no campaign staff. I mean, he, he didn't have a campaign manager in place when this happened. He had no field offices picked out or, or started up or volunteers in place. He had no opposition research on himself done. He had no exploratory committee looking into funding. He just said he was going to fund it himself. Um, I mean, he, he had nothing prepared. And, and uh, that just shows me that he, he had no intention of actually carrying out a 50 state plan to, to run a campaign. He, and, and, you know, even, I mean, it wasn't until after the first debate that he had a platform of his, yeah. of his positions on his website. Like, what? This is, you're running for president. What is this? Like, local politicians have their platform on their website. Oh, my gosh. But, but yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, long story short, I mean, uh, I believe Michael Moore on this, that he had no intention of actually being president, that this was a negotiating tactic that backfired. And, and it just – he – because he – was saying outright racist things, and there are a lot of racists in this country, it just plowed through all the dog whistling from the other Republicans. And, you know, they, I mean, Republicans, you hear them saying this all the time, that he's not afraid to say what we're really thinking. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the you know, actual Republican politicians, you know, governors and so on, they know that they can't say that stuff. They have to dog whistle because they'll get, you know, eaten alive by the mainstream media if they do it. But, but Trump, his whole campaign was built on being outrageous and and a bully, and uh, and there's just a lot of people out there who are either supportive of that directly or are willing to forgive it um, in exchange for something to shake up the status quo. And and here we are. Well, and I I would I would believe what what Michael Moore said, and I I definitely concur with what you're saying. Going a step further beyond the uh, NBC fallout and and all that, and based on some of the reading I've been doing and and. Uh, a, a vague understanding of of his personality quirks and everything. I you're right. He never intended to to run or or to actually win. But I I I tend to think that the more he was told that he won't win, the more it reinforced this thing. Well, I'm going to show them, and and I'm going to keep running. If if he hadn't been challenged so much and mocked and scorned and made fun of early on i'm i'm wondering if he might have dropped out but he was so ridiculed uh from the, from the very beginning that 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 just reinforced this this arrogance in him to keep keep fighting even more exactly and i think i mean i'm i'm in absolutely no way qualified to psychoanalyze Trump, even if I had examined him in person, which I haven't done. Let's not, do it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, you know, this this rule that, that you know, as a professional ethics stance, that, that professional therapists and, and psychologists and so on don't don't attempt to comment on the on the mindset of 
politicians and and candidates uh, because of what happened with Goldwater. But you know, I, I'm under no such professional obligation, and <laughs> and frankly, I think that's I, I I mean, I understand exactly why, as an ethical principle, people don't do that. But I think there is value in in talking about something that is, in my opinion, as a non-expert, patently obvious that Donald Trump is a narcissist, that they, that he has narcissistic personality disorder. I think that is beyond clear to anybody who is familiar with uh, anyone in their lives who is, has the same diagnosis. I, I mean, it's just, it's unquestionable to me. I, I have experience with someone with narcissistic personality disorder and it's, it's crystal clear. He has the, the delusions uh, the, uh, you know, the grandiosity. He has the, the pettiness. He has the inability to, uh, accept any kind of negative criticism. Um, I mean, the, the way that he, he doesn't accept advice from anyone except himself and people that he views as extensions of himself, like his, his, you know, children. I wouldn't even count, if, you know, his wife, Melania, as, as an extension of himself. I think that he views her as an object that he owns. Oh yeah. But she's more um, an accessory than anything else. Right. Yeah. There's a million articles out there discussing the, the character traits. There's, I think there's nine of them uh, in the diagnostic criteria. And if you have five of them, then that's sufficient for a diagnosis. But if you read these, like Donald Trump just checks off every box for what this is. (laughs) And I, I mean, and this, this was actually informative for how I was tweeting to him because I was thinking about this and how you how you have to talk to narcissists, and part of the way that you do it is you just you pop their balloon of this delusion that they have that they are perfect, that they are better than everybody else, that they're they win at everything that they do, that nothing else that anybody says has any value, and you know I mean I called him a loser, which is pretty harsh, but like. He he lost. He didn't win the electoral college vote, but he is two and a half million votes behind the popular yeah. vote. And it's it's an, a terribly unfortunate quirk of the way that our system works that someone can be that far behind in the popular vote and yet become president. But you know, I mean, I did in the in the tweet storm. I called him a fraud, and that's exactly what I think that he is. I think that is extraordinarily fitting for what he is. And I'm not just talking about. His way, you know, fake it till you make it as president is this seems to be his strategy. But I mean, he's he's settled a multi million dollar fraud lawsuit as yeah. a candidate. Like, what? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine if it was, I don't know, like 1991 or something and George H.W. Bush was settling a multi million, like, his campaign would have nosedived yeah. if there was even a, an allegation of any kind of, you know, serious fraud everything about him should have been disqualifying everything yeah i mean it's just he's tweeting things that are they're not just false they're bullshit i mean they're like Mm -hmm. obviously false and and this is really dangerous because they everything that he says now carries with it the weight of the office of the president so it's journalists are are hesitant to call these things even false they don't even they say there is not evidence to support this claim it's like he's he's fucking bullshitting and 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 the the reason that this is so important is that the way that fascism works there's a wonderful book called it's actually a three-part book it's called the origins of totalitarianism by dr hannah rent it's mostly about world war ii but 
this this really lays into exactly what I'm talking about uh, about how fascism works, and the point that she makes in this book is that the way that propaganda works, it's not that you make a claim. It's not that a politician or, or somebody in that position makes a claim that that is true or that is kind of true the way that politicians spin facts to suit their narrative. The way that propaganda works is you say something and it doesn't matter if it's true or false because it's not a, it's not a claim about reality. That's not the point. The point is you put something out there that has to be true in order to justify what you want to do. It is a signal of intent for an action. It is, a, it is right. saying, it is saying, here's what I'm planning. So here's the backstory that has to be true in order for me to do this. And I'm putting it out there. And people can say like, there's no evidence of that, but it doesn't matter because once it's out there and once you've programmed people to distrust the media and to distrust polls and you've programmed them to distrust fact checkers and you tell them everyone is lying to you. I am the only source of truth. You should believe only me. That's, I mean, that's what propaganda is. That's how he's doing this. That's how he's controlling the narrative or, or trying to. And that's why I'm saying it's so important to call this out because we will not accept this, this propaganda. We see what he's doing and we're, we're calling it out as bullshit. And I, I think the most important takeaway from all of this is the, the way fascism accumulates power is by testing people. It's by testing boundaries. This is exactly the same way that pickup artists figure out you know, how they can move in on people. It's the same principle. They do things that are uncomfortable, that are unethical and wrong, and they, they push people, and they figure out how much they can push until you break your politeness and, you, and you're being aghast and you actually say something. And it's the same thing that, that I believe that he's doing. He is, he is trying to find out how far he can go with this uh, in order to justify what he wants to accomplish. And I, I think the solution to this and I said this in my in my tweets as well, is that we have to call this out literally every single time. We you know, we we cannot cooperate in any way. The moment that we allow this to be seen as normal, that we accept this, that we are complacent, that's I mean, we've already lost that point. We have to fight this just to maintain the status quo, really, at this point, um, I, you know, and to maintain the progress that we've made under Obama. Uh, I, I, we're going to backtrack a little bit, one step forward, two steps back type of business at this point. But it is, it is necessary for us to resist every single step that he tries to take. And that's why I was using that hashtag resist. Is That's my whole point, that – we cannot accept this as normal. We have to push back every single step of the way. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think what he says is just signaling or providing justification for what he ultimately wants to do, right? It's it's justification. It's propaganda. It's the beginning. It's not the end game that he's even talking about right now. It's signaling <clears throat> what he wants to do and providing justification for it. So we need to be really fucking terrified. I mean – I'm, I'm terrified and horrified and disgusted by the things that he says now. And then with the idea that this is just the beginning, he's yeah. not even been sworn in as president yet and is saying and doing these things. That's fucking terrifying. Right. I mean, you know, decades of not, not even etiquette, but I mean, international standards as far as diplomacy, 
you know, that he's break, like when you talk to Taiwan, we don't have diplomatic relations with Taiwan. Uh, you know, we subscribe, we, the government, the U.S. government subscribes to a one China policy. And, you know, China was very upset about this. I mean, that's, that's a very important break from protocol to accept a phone call as the president elect. And, and the other thing that, that just scares the crap out of me that he tweeted this about the, you know, the prime minister of Britain, you know, saying, you know, if you're, if you're going to come visit, let me know. It's like, what you, you know, there are diplomats <laughs> whose job it is to yeah. like deal like that's such a breach of protocol. And there, I mean, there's so much etiquette and stuff that has to go to the, well, I mean, first of all, he, you know, the prime minister of Britain is not going to visit uninvited. I mean, that's, this is how this works. The U S government, signals that they want them to come, they send a formal invitation and then they visit. If they don't just show up and like, hey, I'll tweet at you. Hey Trumpy, guess what? I'm down the street. We should have lunch. Like, you know. Oh Donnie, darling, I'm in town. We should get together for brunch. That is not how that works. And the (laughs) fact that he didn't know that and no one on his team close enough to him to stop him from saying that, knew that, or or had enough influence to stop him from doing it, knowing it. I mean, it doesn't even matter which one it was. That's that's appalling. I mean, I'm not a I'm not a diplomat or a politician, and I know that. I learned that in ninth grade civics. Like this is just absurd. But I'm very concerned that I mean, we're going to have a nuclear war in in the first ninety days. You know, <laughs> it's, it's not really a joke. I mean, when you read about the way that the nuclear program was set up, it was it was absolutely with full intent designed so that the president had complete control over the nuclear weapons. It was it was decided that because nukes are are such a different tier of weapon from every other military technology that this was that it was a political move to drop a nuke, not a military move. And they decide, you know, this was I think this was Kennedy's term that they decided this. They said, you know, because this is a political move and not just a military move. Generals cannot be trusted with this decision. This is something that the president has to do. And the, I mean, there are no fail safes. The president is the one who makes the call. No one can stop him. That's the point. It was designed that way. And when you have somebody who's not just petty narcissistic, but, but absolutely ignorant of foreign policy and international relations, I, I am genuinely concerned. You know, we all, I mean, the Cuban Missile Crisis, we got really close yeah, to going to war. That was, I mean, for, for a minute there, we were, that almost happened. And, <laughs> you know, with everything going on in the Middle East and going on in North Korea and going on in China and, you know. So here's, here's my question. Yeah. So in, in this, with this philosophy of, uh, of what he says now is the precursor of what he intends to do. Mm-hmm. Kind of what you've been talking about. Right. Providing justification. Providing for justification for what he intends to do. Do you think this is forethought, the foresight? I mean, is he really that deep and long of a thinker, or is this just kind of off the cuff? I mean, is he just kind of fucking around? And I mean, does he have that much foresight to to have long term plans like that? It's very difficult to say. He's inconsistent, which makes me think that he doesn't. But at the same time, you know, he went to an Ivy League school. He is an absolute master, absolute master of social media and and provoking people and, and self-promotion. I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, he he has he has an excellent sense 
of of how to manipulate people, not just because he's a narcissist, but because he is such a high profile public figure, even even before he ran for president. I mean, he you know he has there's a there's a book about him. It's not an autobiography. I think it's just a biography, but it's called No Such Thing as Overexposure. And I mean, this is this is the point: is that you know his whole life is this this brand, this image of him. In fact, this got him into trouble with the IRS at one point or what I can't, it was either a lawsuit or a tax issue. I don't remember, but the point is he had to talk about under oath, uh, his net worth. And this became a very interesting discussion because he, he said that his net worth fluctuates and the lawyers, depending like, well, on how sure. he feels, right? Exactly. Right. <laughs> and, and the, and the lawyers were like, I mean, yes, you know, if you have stocks and the, you know, certain things can affect value, but you know, he was claiming that his net worth fluctuates by billions of dollars. Yeah. That is that is not physically possible the way that the economy works. Like there, there, those kinds of fluctuations would have very obvious effects on everything else. And it it came out in this in this deposition when he was talking about it that what he meant was that his brand depends on his mood and the value of his person, of, of his companies, uh, of everything that he is, you know, the Trump name, has monetary value based on how he feels. And it's, it's like the whole, oh, I feel like a million bucks, so I guess <laughs> well, no, I'm a millionaire. I, it's like, it's I remember that deposition because they, they uh, kind of caught him yeah. on that. But, uh, and, I think and, it's really funny but it's, it's self-valuation. Yeah. It's not like market valuation right, exactly. based on his it's, brand it's name. Really, it's hilarious to me that if you look at the, you know, the Fortune has a list of the richest people in the world, the, all the billionaires ranked. And, you know, they, they switch places, you know, who's number one, who's number five, whatever. I, I don't remember the exact number, but it's like either in the 200s or in the 400s or something like that, which is really bizarre because if he has $10 billion, as he claims that he does, he should be much, much higher on the list than, than that. Oh. And so I was looking at this list and I noticed that he has a, a net worth of like $3.4 billion or whatever it was. And I was like, that's like, that's a third of what he said. Like, that's a major, major difference. Mm-hmm. And I, they had a little note, and I was like, okay. So I read the note, and it said, Donald Trump claims that his net worth is $10 billion, you know, whatever. Uh, Forbes is, or, or Fortune, whatever, is unable to substantiate this claim, so we did our best guess based on market value of things that we were able to find. <laughs> it's like either this is all an offshore account or he's just full of shit. <laughs> they didn't want to say that, but he's full of shit. <laughs> he's not worth that much. Not, I mean, not that it makes a difference in the real world, but the point is that he's full of shit and that he sees no problem in making this claim repeatedly with no evidence. I mean, and, and again, like I was talking about calling him out on bullshit, he still hasn't released his taxes, and he never will now. I mean, no. there's no incentive for him to do that. Um, although, did you? I don't know if you saw this, that Alec Baldwin himself yeah. actually tweeted tweeted back at Trump, and he said, uh, you know, because he didn't he didn't like his impression, and he said, "I'll stop doing it if you release your taxes." <laughs> <laughs> so perfect. Saturday Night Live has been mocking the U.S. president for 30 years now. Did Trump honestly think that they were going to stop doing that just because it was him? Because, but I'm going to be the best president ever. The best. (laughs) There's no reason to mock me. I'm incredible. Everything about him is so mockable. I mean, I I generally don't go in for the kind of humor that makes fun of somebody's hair or, or weight or 
you know, orange skin or th- I, I don't care about that. There's <laughs> there's so much about lip, Trump lip that is position. absolutely justifiable as as being critical that I don't think we need to go there. But what they were making fun of was that Trump cannot sit through an entire security briefing on national security without – I mean just his, his attention span is so short that he can't get through one without tweeting – and and you know retweeting there's some high school 16 year old you know that he retweeted and i mean that's what the joke was was that he can't keep himself off twitter for 5 minutes and so what's his solution to this is, is I'll, yeah. I'll tweet about it like yeah his his way of refuting yeah. that notion is to do exactly what they're mocking exactly. him for and it's just yeah <laughs> and that's i mean as you had asked me this earlier you know that's really what set me off i was like the irony like oh my god <laughs> you know I, it was too much i was just like this only only a narcissist could have so little self-awareness and and so much apathy for the irony that I is just like, oh, jeez, um, how is this man president? I've always felt, and that it even goes beyond narcissism. And a lot of this ties into one of the statements in your tweet storm, which which really kind of resonated with me. It's when you said, "And you know what the real secret is? You're disgusted by you too." <clears throat> and I've always kind of felt that this goes beyond narcissism, that that he has a fundamental lack of self-worth. It's not not just that he's, you know, likes a brag. I don't think he values himself at all. And so he does all this to reinforce his own self-worth. I, I feel like that's kind of a level deeper from just your classic kind of, uh, you know, uh, convenience store narcissism. Yeah. <laughs> that he really doesn't value himself. He's always seeking approval from others. Yeah. I mean, and I think that that, that is part of it is that I think deep down that he is, he is aware that he is not the smartest person in the world who has the best words. Like, I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's, I mean he's got, there's, I, I mean, there's ignorance and, and, you know, lack of self-awareness. And then there's like, I have the best words. You've got to know that that is. That <laughs> You've got is the best one-syllable words, yeah. Right? Yeah. And I mean, he speaks in so much hyperbole. It's it's you wonder who he's trying to convince, and especially the way that he repeats himself so much, and he he does these like sentence fragment things. It is very strange style of speaking. His his the linguistics of of how he chooses to express himself are fascinating. It is. Um, if yeah. if you've read any of his uh, non non teleprompter speeches, mm-hmm. it's it's amazing to read the text of it without the uh, all the distractions of of his personality, and he just cannot stay on a, a constant stream of thought. Oh yeah, I for would more hate than to be, eight or ten words at a time. Yeah, I would hate to be the person who has the job of transcribing his speeches. <laughs> I know. Without where, a teleprompter. Do, where the fuck do you or put somebody, punctuation? Or somebody who has to do the closed captioning for when he's doing speeches, <laughs> yeah, right? Like, what a shit job so that would be. <laughs> I want to read something to you. This is real. This is not a joke. This is from a town hall in Rochester, New Hampshire, on September seventeenth. 2015 on it was a thursday and somebody asked this question they said how will you bring back the american dream and here is a transcript of his answer (laughs) look 
we can bring back the American dream. That I will tell you. We're bringing it back, okay? And I understand what you're saying. And I get that from so many people. Is the American dream dead? They're asking me the question, is the American dream dead? And the American dream is in trouble. That I can tell you, okay? It's in trouble. But we're going to get it back and do some real jobs. How about the man with the beautiful red hat? Stand up. Stand up. What a hack. <laughs> so just, just you. Well, I, the question I, I, was how will you bring back the american dream he's referring to the american dream like <laughs> i did my answer. my dog spot yeah. when when he ran away from home <laughs> to, it's to the same your, thing i i don't have it right in front of me but it's the same thing at the last debate with hillary when the question was about black lives matter and how you're going to connect with black americans when you know when your campaign is so oppressive to minorities and the things that you've said and especially your supporters and so on and he started talking about obama's birth certificate and how everybody was you know should be grateful that he really pushed for that and he got that to happen oh yeah and then he settled the moderator was was like well okay the question was about black lives matter (laughs) like he's like just to remind you I mean, every politician does that to a degree. You know, they 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 substitute your question with a question they want to answer. Well, yeah, but, they'll, they'll pivot. Yeah. They'll pivot and change the subject a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. But they don't. They don't make it something completely different from what they were asked. Squirrel. Right. Yeah. No, that's really what he does. I mean, I have actually watched in the realm of a hundred plus hours of Trump speeches. Mm. So I watched. I mean, I watched every single debate on both sides, and I watched. A lot of Hillary rallies. I watched a lot of Hillary speeches, and I watched uh, as many Bernie ones as I could find, and as many Donald Trump ones as I could find, and many other of the politicians of the candidates too. But the interesting thing is that okay, so generally when a politician goes and they do their tours, they give pretty much the same speech every time. You know, their stump speech, and they have. 15 to 30 or so talking points that they hit every time and they change them up a little bit and they they pull in some current events and they talk a little bit about stuff and they might reword things yeah but, they'll, you know, they'll bring in location right, information right. how's ohio sure. doing yeah but i mean you give the same speech i mean you know four times a day you're gonna say the same thing right. and i've been to several bernie events in person and i i had, I was invited to go meet him at a volunteer appreciation thing in Iowa. And while he was there, he gave totally off the cuff. He gave his same speech because there were people there. And I recorded this and I have compared that video to several other videos that people have shot of his stump speeches. And I mean, word for word, he's got this down. It's, I mean, it's like a play at this point. You know, he knows what he's saying. He's been saying the same thing for 30 years. He uses the same phrasings every time because he's figured out a good way to do it that, you know, that's alliterative and so on. And he's just, he knows what to say and he says it over and over. So the issue with that, of course, is that the news media is like, well, we already covered this twice this morning and it's the same thing yesterday so there's there's nothing to cover you know it's the same speech so you don't get news coverage of that and that's normally how it is you talk about the major things that they bring up that are new but you don't cover the stump speech but trump because he used no notes because he used no talking points just bullshitted for an hour every time he spoke and because he was just bullshitting he said outrageous things every time, and every single day they reported on the outrageous thing that he said, and they played the clips over and over. And it was – I mean it was nonstop because every day it was something new, and that's 
that's what the news wants. They it's they want to report on something different and newsworthy and interesting and fresh. Well, it's and how they, they gain viewers yeah, and and they weren't getting that from anybody else. And I mean, the amazing thing to me is that as journalists, part of what in- journalistic integrity means is not editorializing. They have to be knee deep and arm's length, you know, from the story at the same time. <laughs> but activists, you know, I mean, we can we can say stuff that journalists can't say. We can we can yeah. take public figures by the shoulder and shake them. And and that works on a lot of public figures, but in Donald Trump's case, you know, he he is absolutely uninterested in anything anyone has to say if it doesn't come from his brain. And and you can't like normally when you get called out by somebody your team is like, okay, when you talk about this, there's optics involved. You know, we got to do some some focus groups. We got to figure, you know, figure out exactly the way to fix this. And he's just like, oh, those mainstream media don't trust them. Just you know, forget it. They're they're just they're biased. Excuse me. <laughs> I, I would I would throw out a couple of exceptions to that. Yeah. And this this kind of ties into what you said a few minutes ago about who is he trying to impress, and and I think there are a few institutions that he respects that he wants Reinhardt? he wants them to no actually the new york <laughs> times i think oh. he desperately wants them to respect him because they are a respected news organization hometown paper yeah. the the paper of record for the nation um the gray lady yeah and there was yeah. a reporter i was i was uh listening to a couple of weeks ago i don't remember his name and he was saying that uh, the New York elite have never actually accepted, really accepted Trump into their fold, no matter how much money he makes, no matter how many buildings. Why he would puts you? Up, he's a crass, boorish he's, jackass. He's not one of them, and that's always kind of hurt Trump. Uh, Trump's been very offended by that, and he's tried really, really hard to uh, get into their fold, into their graces. To ingratiate himself. Because he wants to be accepted by them, and, and they just won't. And, and that's, that's bothered him quite a bit, too. Yeah, I find that completely believable. I think that makes a lot of sense. And especially, uh, I had read somewhere um, that he watches TV news every morning uh, while he's reading the paper. Uh, but the paper that he reads every day is the New York Times. Right. And... Um, I think that I think that you're right. I think, especially if you read through the transcript. I mean, it's quite long, but if you read through the the transcript of uh, when he sat down with the entire political editorial team at the New York Times recently, he really seems to have a, a great deal of respect, or I would even say reverence for the people in that room. I think that you're right. I think that it's it's it wounds him on a personal level yeah. that uh, that the New York Times has never bought his shit. Well, I wonder uh, if the same thing could be said for Saturday Night Live. I mm-hmm. mean, I mean, newspapers and, and all kinds of people have been mocking him across the country for the last year. Mm-hmm. But the the mocking he takes personally is is Saturday Night Live. That's yeah. that's the one he really goes out of his way uh, to make fun of. So yeah. And and from what I understand, like his pettiness is this is a deep thing for him. And again, I'm not at all qualified to psychoanalyze him, you know. Of course, blah blah. blah. But like I, I remember that I read somewhere when they were talking about because Marco Rubio, I believe it was, who had brought up his hand size as a thing like that, you know, that started. That. And you know, of course, you know, and he he started calling him little Marco, you know, to get back at that, but. 
that he brought this up in in like a debate like that this was this was his focus was that you know his hands are normal size like what planet is this that this is presidential debate material talking about the size of your hands and and saying you know when you have big hands you have big well you know uh, there's no problem there like is that really the way that he views this contest as is his dick big enough to be like jeez but i mean you know that doesn't actually i mean he's he's a total misogynist and i mean that actually doesn't surprise me too much but the reason i bring this up with about the hands though is that I think that the reason that he was so latched onto that criticism is that this is not the first time that someone has accused him of having small hands, which is a pretty bizarre and specific thing to talk about. But <laughs> I, I read this article where somebody had said uh, it was a, it was some director or, or producer, some somebody in television had said this about him once years ago, like twenty years ago, that he has small hands and. When this happened with Rubio, uh, this this guy wrote an article. I don't remember who it was, but he wrote this article and he said, "This is not the first time this came up." And he said, "I I said that just poke fun at the guy like twenty years ago." And he said, "Regularly, regularly since then, Donald Trump has sent me photos of himself with his hands <laughs> circled." Showing that they're normal size, and he's like, "What?" He's like, I, "He's like, this is the most bizarre." You know, he's like, "I just wrote it off as an eccentricity." I mean, the guy's a billionaire; he can do what he wants. But like, you know, this is now this is now like political history at this point. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, that he's talking about his but like something about that just well, just think, struck a nerve with him, and he couldn't let it go. Well, I think I it ties I, into. I mean, we were talking yeah. earlier about his lack of self worth. Or, or my, my interpretation of his lack of right. self worth and his, his existing insecurities that he can't get past. And that's yeah. what really frightens me. Somebody with that level of insecurity and lack of self worth is, is the leader of the free world mm-hmm. that, that they're goaded so much. I mean, even beyond just his normal thin skin, right. but that they can be goaded on, on such trivial matters as, you know, making fun of your dick size, right? By by making by making fun of your hands, and um, and and this is and again, this is. I mean, I, I just I I keep saying this disclaimer, but I just I am not qualified to psychoanalyze this. Person. Oh yeah, no, neither, <laughs> but, no. right? But I mean, just you know, if you look up the diagnostic criteria for narcissistic personality disorder, one of the diagnostic criteria is called false image projection, and it's this this idea that narcissistic people are are very very concerned with their image and they do things and say things and project this image to impress people like they they refer to it as like the trophy complex where you want to present yourself as this physically dominant person this sexually dominant person this socially dominant person this financially dominant person this academically dominant person this this person who has everything and is at the top of their game in every single possible field and they narcissists use people not i mean in a manipulative sense but but they they use and surround themselves with with objects with people with things that uh the the point is is to substitute this perception of perfection in every way uh, because of these feelings of inadequacy about who they really are deep down. And it's extraordinarily common with narcissists 
to laughably exaggerate these types of things. And it's, it's just based on this deep seated idea that they have to be better than everybody and they have to be special and, and that they have earned everybody's admiration, even though they haven't. And it's just, this is such like, this is such a typical thing of narcissists that I, I don't think it's a Trump thing. I think it's just a narcissist thing because this, I mean, this is like textbook narcissism, the, this, this personality aspect of, of who he is and what he does. And, and again, this extends, you know, to, to not just money, not just clothes, not just, you know, gold furniture, but, but like, <laughs> yeah. but, but Melania too, that, you know, he sees her as a trophy. He sees her as something that high status people have and, that this this adds to his you know conquering the world of of sex and romance um and that makes him better than everybody and it's important to him that people recognize that he has the most beautiful wife and that people recognize that he has you know the the penthouse at the very top of the tower and like that's just it's it's a substitute to to fill in this hole for how for how little he really thinks of himself, but cannot bring himself to, to express to anyone, uh, even himself in some ways that he's just scared of anybody finding out that, that he's really not as amazing as he thinks that he, or says that he is, you know? Well, I I think this ties in beautifully to one of your other tweets in your tweet (laughs) storm that, that really jumped out at me. Uh, it's where you said, you are not fooling anyone. You're scared and overwhelmed, and you have absolutely no idea what you're doing. And and I think you were absolutely right on that. Yeah, I, I think that was spot on. I think it was spot. I I think he is fooling some people. I think there are some people. In the, <laughs> yeah, clearly there there are yeah. some people in the Rust Belt. There are some people who really think, oh well, he's made a lot of money, so he will. Yeah, no, I who who aren't. But I think generally speaking on both sides of the aisle not just on on progressives but even republicans understand that that he has no idea what the fuck he's right he's in for. right i read this beautifully written article it was just it broke this down so amazingly well and it's it was talking about when trump visited the white house and met the president and it was his understanding mr trump's understanding that he was there for like a meet and greet and that this was going to last 10 minutes and that they were going to shake hands and do a photo and then he was going to leave. But, you know, the, the president had blocked off an hour. This was, this was planned. He had intended to spend time with him and talk to him. And, you know, the, the big news from this, the wall street journal reported on it that he seemed overwhelmed and he and his staff did not seem to grasp the scope of this job. His staff did not know in advance of this that they would have to replace all of the staffers in yeah. the White House. Yeah, I that mean, they not, would have to replace everybody in the West Wing. Right, exactly. That I mean, this is, you know, those those jobs tend to go to high-level campaign people, you know, is kind of a, a, you work 80 hours a week for a year and a half, and, and then you get a nice White House job when when your guy wins, you know. Right. But, but, uh, but he didn't seem to know that. And his staff didn't seem to know that. And that, I mean, that was just frightening. What this article said that was just so beautiful, and it, this wasn't Wall Street Journal, this was something else, but it was written by a lawyer. And I believe it was a woman who wrote it. And she said, when I saw his face, Donald Trump's face in those pictures, she said, I knew exactly what happened. She's like, 
Obama, before he was a senator and you know, long before he was a president, he was a law professor. And she said the difference between college and law school, and this every single law student knows exactly what I'm talking about. Your first day of a college class tends to go like this. You sit down, the teacher introduces the professor, rather, sorry, introduces him or herself. They pass out the syllabus. They answer some questions. They talk about their schedule, their expectations, their office hours, their contact information, and they might let you go 15 minutes early. That is not the way the first day of law school goes. And this is what she said. She said, you are thrown into the deep end of the pool. And she's like, your very first day, you have to have 200 pages of reading done. They start calling on people randomly to answer very specific questions that you have to have done the reading to know. And this is how it's sink or swim. She's just like, this is the way law school works. They don't fuck around. They, they just shove you in there and you have to, you just have to do it. And she's like, people who aren't told this in advance are freaking out and crying because they're like, <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. The Why culture shock is just way right. too much. It's just right. But it, I mean, this is how they get people to drop out. They tell them, we're going to go at this pace starting right now. And if you're not ready, then just leave because you're not going to make it in law school. And she's like, you know, he was a law professor. He knows what he's doing. When she saw, or when, when he saw Trump come in and he's like, okay, here's how this is going to work. I'm just going to just run you through every single thing that's going on here. I'm going to overwhelm the shit out of you and you are going to be aghast and depressed in the next hour by how little you know about what you're doing. But the amazing thing is that by doing this, Obama appears to be this super helpful invested person in this who really wants Trump to succeed, who is, you know, going above and beyond explaining every single detail of how absurdly uh, overwhelming this job is with the goal, of course, being to expose Trump for having no idea what's going on. But it makes, you know, Obama doesn't look like an asshole in this situation. Obama's approval rating goes up because yep. of this. Right? Well, it's, so, it's striking yeah. to me how much President Obama has been doing him and his entire staff have been doing to make the transition as smooth and easy as possible going so far as to putting all of this stuff on iPads and you know clearly Donald Trump doesn't carry around a lot of paper he's into electronic devices whatever so they do all of these things to make it as easy as possible and Trump and his acolytes are still completely fucking overwhelmed by it which is kind of annoying to me to be honest because I'm a bitter angry evil person and and and, and i want I, I want obama to be an asshole i i want obama i want obama to leave him with this shit show to like you know destroy everything and and have, hey, don't he? welcome to the white house uh go fuck yourself yeah. that's, that's what i want but i'm a, i'm i'm a bitter person and this is why i should never be president this is why somebody like obama is because he's a better person than me but it He's Still the kind ultimate of statesman, right? I mean, he's, he wants what is best for the country, and he knows that Donald Trump has been voted into office. There's not much he can do about yeah. it. He's going to try to make it as easy for everybody, including all the citizens of the United States, for Trump's yeah. takeover as possible. But at the same time, it's just fucking heartbreaking to see somebody that inept and that clueless and that ignorant about the position that who, he had been working toward for a year and a fucking half. And who won the way he did. Yeah. 
not not even just you know losing the ele- the popular vote the way he did but but to win the way he did everything that led up to his win right which was so despicable danielle did you see the uh coverage or or any of the news talking recently about uh when the when the press corps sat down sat down with members of each campaign and they had their talking points back and forth and it erupted a few different times in shouting matches. Oh, no, it was a Harvard. It was, it's a Harvard yeah. post post. It's a thing they do. They've been doing it for like over a hundred years or something like that. Uh, they do a, a post election panel with Harvard students. Yeah. So yeah, with the, all the blow ups with Kellyanne Conway. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I haven't seen this. No. Oh shit. Oh yeah. So it's so it's sitting down with the leaders of of each campaign. Oh, and, I saw a picture of that, but I yeah, I didn't read it yet. But I okay, yeah. I'm sorry. Go on. Yeah, yeah. And they they just kind of break down. You know what what do you think your campaign did right? What did you do wrong? What can you improve on? What are you proud of? What are you ashamed of? You know, just kind of covering how the campaign was ran by the people who actually ran the campaign. Mm-hmm. And so several times during their interaction, it, it erupted into shouting matches back and forth with the people on Hillary Clinton's campaign saying, you know, well, I would much rather that we would have lost than to win the way, you know, speaking to Kellyanne Conway, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm much happier that we lost than if we had won the way that you won this election. Mm-hmm. With all of the, with all of the dog whistles that you put out for racists and xenophobes and, and the ignorant bigots who are supporting your campaign, I'm much happier that we lost running a clean campaign than the way that you won this campaign. And Kaylee and Kenway's like, no, no, you're not. No, you're not. Yeah, just yelling yeah. back and forth. It was just this really Conway, petty thing. Conway yeah. shouting out, he's your president. You just need to accept it. Yeah. Yeah, Conway was there. Uh, Corey Lewandowski was there. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. It's yeah. Uh, yeah, it was. It was, and usually this this forum that Harvard puts on, it's usually very uh, very civilized. Oh yeah, very civilized. There's a lot of respect, and it just kind of talking to the Harvard students. The Harvard students ask their questions, and it's just a very civilized event. But there's just so much bitterness there. Arguably, I mean, you know, the the left is being a little sore loserish, uh, but the right is being a very sore winner, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> very bitter about their win because they didn't get the win they wanted to get. Right, right. Um, well, yeah. and and they keep talking about this mandate that Trump has oh, now. Where the hell. fuck are they getting the idea of of a mandate that Trump has? Yeah. He lost the popular vote. What the fuck are they talking about with any mandate? What's their own definition of the word? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, and, and how disappointing is it that he actually won, knowing that he didn't have a ground game going, he didn't have offices, he didn't have staff, he didn't have people contributing to his campaign. All he had were legions of dipshits at his fingertips. And this this reminds me, too, of what we were talking about earlier about how he just he has this psychological and again not psychological you know but, <laughs> you, but we keep this, having to qualify yeah, that but he he has this need to be the best at everything and i mean you know I, I mean he already won but he's harping on about how he would have actually won the popular vote too except for three you know, million quote yeah. millions of quote illegal votes and you know i mean and this is I talked about this in my in my tweets as well about 
There is no possible way. I mean, if you, if you consider the number of people who voted, that's like one in 50 votes that he's talking about. If it's, if we're in the millions here, uh, you know, one in 50 votes he thinks was fraudulent. If that, if he really believes that. And I said, there's just no, I mean, that's absurd. There is no possible way that he thinks that one out of 50 votes cast was fraudulent. That's not possible. And the reason that, that, this made me so upset. And, and what I was talking about earlier, uh, Hannah Arendt's book about the origins of totalitarianism is that his, you have to understand what he said, not as a claim about reality, because that's not what that was, that he wasn't, he wasn't saying, you know, with no evidence either, he wasn't saying that this happened. He was telling us what he's going to do. This is a threat. He's saying, I am going to make it virtually impossible for poor people to vote. And the reason that I'm doing that is because I don't want, you know, parentheses again, for millions of illegal people, uh, of illegal votes to be cast. And, you know, I mean, if you understand this in the con, or if you, if you look at this in the context as this is a warning about my intention rather than this is a claim about reality. Suddenly it makes a lot more sense how he could say something just so blatantly impossibly false yet make this claim as, you know, as, as the president elect, what's he really doing? What's his real purpose here? Well, what he's doing is he's saying this has to be true in order to do what I want and what Republicans want, which is to restrict the number of polling places to restrict the voting hours to absolutely stamp out the idea of a, a national holiday for voting to stamp out the idea of uh, automatic registration to stamp out the idea of mail-in ballots like they have in Oregon and make sure that only people who live in rich neighborhoods who have IDs that are up to date can vote which is you know going to tend to be beneficial to republicans yeah. um because a lot of the people who who vote tend to be in neighborhoods that don't have a lot of money, uh, and and tend to have more troubles, you know, spending four hours in line because they have young children, because they have jobs by you know paid by the hour or, or whatever it is, um, and 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 they're unable to to make that happen and fit into their lives, even knowing that it's very important. And I, I read somewhere, I think Dan Arell is the one who directed me to this information, but. The margin by which Trump won the state of Michigan as far as the number of raw votes is significantly smaller than the number of people who were turned away from voting for lacking the proper ID. And not that we can necessarily assume that everyone who was turned away would have voted for Hillary, but I think if you lack a proper ID, there's a pretty good chance that you're a Democrat just because Democrats – statistically speaking, tend to be more itinerant as far as their address. But, I mean, even if just a significant fraction of them voted, it would be a much closer margin um, than it was. And it, I, I don't know what would have happened with a recount had had that not been an issue. But what's going to happen the next term when we have a Republican Congress, that's, that's going to be an extremely high priority for them is making sure that 2018 doesn't lose them the Congress. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very concerned about this because with a Republican Congress and a, Repub- and a right-leaning Supreme Court and a Republican president, there's virtually nothing to stop them from doing whatever they want. 
Well, and, and, uh, and a majority yeah. of Republican state legislatures and governorships uh, right. that that actually put in these voter ID laws. I think you're right. absolutely – I mean, these voter ID laws are clearly in place for mm-hmm. voter suppression. Right. Statements like what Trump said are, are clearly along those lines as well. Yeah, and, and this is something that I've been watching – a little more closely than a lot of people around the country uh, because I live in Missouri. And Missouri's got an interesting problem where we passed this law about this real ID, it's called, where – so we have two international airports in this state, one in St. Louis and one in Kansas City. And because of a quirk in the way that this real ID is written, you can – starting – Next year, although they got an extension, so it's actually 2018 now, but it was supposed to be, you know, in a month, if they hadn't gotten this extension, that you cannot use a Missouri driver license at an airport to fly. It is not up to par. You are supposed to get a passport. And this is a serious problem for Missouri. You can't use the license in the you state can, in the state of Missouri if you have a Missouri driver license and you are trying to fly the way that the law is written that is not sufficient identification to check wow. in with the TSA so they got an extension to try to remedy this and try to figure out some other solution because obviously these two airports are going to be in huge trouble you know if if Missourians cannot fly well, yeah, out all of the there. all of the <laughs> citizens of Missouri the state that they need to right. leave can't right. get on a fucking plane yeah so I mean, they're working on trying to fix this, uh, and they're going to have to like change the law to get that to to happen because I don't think that was an intended consequence of this, but it is a consequence of this. And like I said, they got an extension, so we have another year to figure it out. But like, this is this is an absurd problem to have that there's really no need for this even to have existed in the first place as an issue for us. The only reason this exists as an issue for us is because Republicans wanted to stop Democrats from voting. And like, I, this is just incredibly obvious to me when you look at the statistics of in-person voter fraud, which is a very specific type of voter fraud. There are lots of ways that you can, that you can cheat in an election and having a registered voter who does not themselves show up to vote, but having somebody else with a fake ID pretending to be that registered voter going to vote, that almost never happens. There's yeah. a handful of recorded cases of that ever happening. Well, ever. And, and this yeah. election season, the only time right. I've seen that happen, it was Trump supporters. Yep. Yeah, and actually in both of those cases, there were two. And in, in neither, or rather, in neither of them was that type of voter fraud. What happened? No, what they happened, showed up to vote twice. Yeah, they well, they they did a absentee ballot, and then they also showed up in person to vote. Yeah, and and you know, it's the act of attempting to vote uh, fraudulently is a felony. So you know, there's charges that happened as a result of this, but. Uh, they weren't allowed to vote twice. It's not like they did it. It's not like they voted twice. They showed up and they asked for a ballot and they checked the roll to see if they were an eligible voter who's registered properly. And it says, well, it says here you voted absentee already. You know, what are you doing here? Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, you said you were going to be out of town today. And uh, yeah, and that's a felony. So, I mean, but like we have laws in place. We have fail safes and checks and to make sure that this doesn't happen, which were successful 
which twice, were successful. They yeah. didn't need a voter ID law, right? And to I mean, catch even this if, person. yeah, I mean, and, and a voter ID would not have stopped them. I mean, they still had to show they still had to show who they are. And you know, when I go to vote, I don't even use my ID the way we have it in Missouri. You get this voter identification card. I've got it right here in front of me, and it's from the county clerk. It doesn't have a photo on it. It's just a, it's it's like a cutout, but you sign it, and it has your legal name and your address and the county clerk's phone number. And on the back is a change of address form where if you're going to move, you fill it out and you drop it in the mail and they send you a new one. But technically, according to Missouri law, until the law changes, I should not need an ID as far as a state issued government or a photo ID. I mean, a driver license or, or you know, non-driver state ID uh, to vote. This is sufficient. And you know, we don't have a voter fraud problem in Missouri, despite this this little piece of paper with my signature and address being the only thing on there that identifies me. This, you know, this has been sufficient to stop voter fraud for years. I mean, for yeah. decades and decades. Well, and what's what's amazing to me, and and blatantly hypocritical, and and a little bit scary. You know, uh, Trump sends out this tweet about three million. Uh, three million uh, illegal voters. He would have won the vote. A blatant lie. Everybody knows it's a blatant lie. He has no evidence whatsoever. Everyone's calling him on it. And then Mike Pence goes on on Stephanopoulos. This on this week with George Stephanopoulos, I was and he losing says, my fucking mind watching that show. I shit. I I almost hit the floor when when he said this. So this, I, I missed this. Yeah. What did he say? This this is his quote when when Stephanopoulos asked him about the lie about the three million votes. So Stephanopoulos asked, "Can you provide any evidence to back up that statement about the three million uh, illegal votes?" Pence says. Well, look, I think he's expressed his opinion on that, and he's entitled to express his opinion on that. And I think the American people find it very refreshing that they have a president who will tell them what's on his mind. Yeah. He's saying the American people find it refreshing when the president-elect lies to them. Well, and Stephanopoulos tried pressing him on it, and he's like, well, what is refreshing about a president who – lies to people what is refreshing about and, that yeah and of course pence had had no response yeah. i don't remember <laughs> i don't have all the quote beyond that yeah oh that's but incredible. to find it refreshing that that the president is lying to after everything we went through with yeah. hillary well and the other defense pence threw out there was well you know and it's great that we live in a country where you know we all have that first amendment right to free speech and our president can express his opinion just like anybody else jesus we, it's it, we live in a post fact era, man. Yeah. It's yeah. It, the facts no, don't I, matter is, no. to these right. people. But, well, in, yeah. in in the last few months, I I haven't read the whole thing, mm. but I've, I've read selected passages out of Mein Kampf, specifically about propaganda, and and the way Mein Kampf says propaganda should be created and used. Even in there, the parallels with what's going on is are are it's incredible. Yeah, I I read somewhere. I don't know if. This is a reliable source. Um, but somebody told me that uh, Donald Trump has, well, he's expressed not like direct admiration for Hitler, but like, you know, he's said things that are positive about dictators in the well, past. Well, clearly he was but, a great leader. He was a very course. powerful yeah. man. Yeah. yeah. Well, he had positive but, uh, things to say about Hussein. Yeah. 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 But, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but I saw a, a report from somewhere, and I'm having source amnesia here, so this might 
this might not be a true thing that I'm saying, but somewhere well, but I we're in the post-fact world. Yeah, of course. Uh, somewhere I read that uh, among the books that he keeps in his bedroom, uh, one of them is a biography of Hitler, which is not like, and it's, I mean, lo- you know, lots of people study history, especially people with an interest in politics. And so that's, uh, you know, I have some books about Hitler too, but like, he That's doesn't strike me as a scholar, him. though, as somebody right. who likes to yeah. study he things. He doesn't really seem he, like a deep yeah. reader. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if you saw this. Um, Samantha B talked about she doesn't like she asked the question: Is is Trump illiterate? Like it's not, a, it's not a joke. No, she's like she's like I'm actually serious because he yells his tweets to his assistant who tweets them, and when he was on SNL doing the table reads. One of the guys was on uh, like Howard Stern or somebody, uh, and they asked him about what was it like working with Trump. You know, I mean, you you spend a, several days with him, going over scripts and acting with him, and he said, "Well, it's weird because Trump can't read." And Howard Stern was like, "Wait, wait, what? Trump can't read?" He's like, "Yeah, I mean, like you give him the script, and he's like, I don't really, I don't really like working with scripts." He's like, "We're just gonna spitball this," and he's like. And we, we had like cue cards and stage directions and like he just ignored them. And not for like minor things like changing the line to make a joke different, but like the flow of the skit, he would ignore that. And they were like, this cue card is important. Like you can't just change this because that's the whole sketch, that's you know? Fucking, but that's a fucking yeah. punchline yeah. there. But like, and he was like, I think he really can't read. <laughs> and, like, and I mean, you know, I, I don't think that's that's literally true. And I mean, obviously, he got through college, and you know, it's well, but so and, did Bush. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> yeah, Trump is Bush two point right. right. But uh, but if you if you talk to, I mean, one of Donald Trump's biggest critics, um, but the guy who wrote the Art of the Deal or co-wrote the oh. Art of the Deal, oh, so, I, who was the ghostwriter for it? Yeah. 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 So so he's. He hates Donald Trump. Oh yeah, and he's tweeted about this a lot. And he it strongly encourages anybody uh, not to buy that book. He says, "Pirate it! Don't read! Don't buy it!" <laughs> and he says, "Any he says I, for years, all the money I've been getting from that book, I donate." He's like, "I want nothing to do with that book." But he said, "I know Trump probably better than anyone else because I've spent significant time with him. Anyone else who's not a family member who you know who is in a position to speak negatively about him, that is." And he said, Trump has no idea what he's doing. He is actually stupid. And he said so, I mean, just just tore into the guy about, I think he was one of the first people to really very publicly talk about how he doesn't pay his contractors and how he gets out of of doing that. Yeah, Um, Yeah, that was was Tony Schwartz's, the ghostwriter's name. Yeah, yes, yes, thank you. Um, I, I was thinking Tony Shalhoub, and I was like, nope, that's an actor. <laughs> no, that's, that's <laughs> a different guy. <laughs> I was like, but uh, no, actually, so I, a friend of mine is a violinist, and uh, so I've actually been, you know, through a third party aware of this subcontract or this uh, contractor thing for a number of years. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a musician also, and I, I know a lot of musicians and work with them. And this friend of mine is a violinist, and she was invited to play. Uh, some background music at a party for Donald Trump at his place, at his house. And this was the way that she describes it. She said, like, everything is gold. Like, every, like, ridiculous things that should not be gold are gold. And she said, on the ceiling in one corner is this huge mural, like, ceiling painting Michelangelo style of 
Jesus and Mary and Joseph. And then on the other side is Donald Trump and his family. (laughs) It was just the most disgustingly ornate, you know, King Louis, like ridiculousness that you can think of. But she said, you know, it was, it was black tie and it was really fancy. And um, so I drove like several hundred miles to this gig and I was supposed to get paid some decent bank for it. You know, I mean, it's a party with Donald Trump. Uh, This is going to, you know, she she didn't tell me how much it was, but she's like, this was like a significant portion of my monthly income. And so when she played this gig afterwards, she was talking to whoever was in charge of organizing it. And they basically just said, it'll be taken care of later. And she's like, well, I mean, I drove a couple hundred miles. I would like <laughs> to be paid. And eventually it was communicated to her. I'm not sure if this was directly from him or someone who worked for him, but basically the story was that, the fact that she got to play the privilege of getting to play for Mr. Trump's party would be so valuable to her resume. She's like, fuck you. I went to Carnegie. Like the King has allowed you to play in his court. You should feel honored. Yeah. From what she understood, there's just this, this ability to tell people that I played for Donald Trump was worth more than any money that I could pay. (laughs) There there have been so many stories about a lack of payment of contractors, uh, lack of payment here and yeah. there. I mean, he didn't even pay a lot of his own campaign staff. Those those yeah. poor little creepy uh, uh, American flag girls who were singing. They they he didn't even pay them. Oh yeah, that sang that the, really the yeah, flag terrible girl, song. Yeah, yeah, it's like three or four blonde flag like girls, fifteen year old girls. Yeah. yeah, and and their father is suing him because they wouldn't wouldn't pay him. I can't imagine why anyone would do business with the Trump organization at right. this point without being paid up front, or yeah. why they do business with them. Period. But <laughs> well, and actually, I mean, this is a serious issue. There was a hotel. There's some hotel that has removed. Because Trump doesn't run his own hotels anymore. He stopped doing that quite a while ago because they all started losing money when he was making decisions. But what he does now is he – well, I'm serious. Like, so, so what he does, uh, what he does is he hires – or uh, he – excuse me, licenses uh, his brand name yeah, right. to existing hotels and they rebrand. And it's really just – they call it the Trump Hotel, but the, he has other people who actually run it and he has nothing to do with it. He, has, he has no ownership stake in them right. anymore. Yeah. But – from my understanding of it, they are preparing to remove the Trump logo uh, and branding from this hotel at their request, at the hotel's request, because their occupancy has just nosedived since this ha- since Trump, uh, you know, became this internationally infamous figure, well, and they're like nobody wants to stay here anymore. They, they did that. They did that to two buildings in New York. Yeah. They've actually already taken them down. There is, they oh. had like photos a few couple of weeks ago. Of of them taking the Trump name off two of his buildings, obviously yeah. not Trump Towers. I think he might still own Trump Towers. He, he does. I'm sure that he does because, well, I mean, you know, his he lives there and his office is there on the twenty. He's got his penthouse at the top two floors, yeah. and then he has his office on the twenty sixth floor. But and these, they're making some significant changes to that. I was reading this thing about they were talking to uh, one of the people who lives there, um, and they're like. You know, we all have to get security clearances. And they're like, I didn't sign up for this shit. Like, you know, they're doing all these background checks on my family and like all my employees, like every, all of my customers, all my employees and employers, like everybody has to be checked out. And like, you know, like they're like, what if, like, not that I'm worried, but what if I don't pass the security clearance? So I have to move. Like, I own this nice apartment that I bought in this, you know, beautiful building in New York. And it's like, 
that's why they're petitioning New York not to allow Trump to stay there. Yeah. Right. And there's also the just the financial impact of doing that. I mean, uh, right now, because it's, you know, they're, I don't, I don't know the, all the details of this, but as I understand it, um, NYPD significantly contributes to closing down the street and uh, providing you know, transportation, all sorts of other things. But anyway, yeah, providing security was, outside the yeah, building and the barricades right. and the roadblocks. Mm-hmm. And and as I understand it, right now, half that street, one of the lanes is closed permanently, like or semi, you know, semi permanently, but twenty four hours a day. And this is uh, Fifth Avenue. Right, right. right. Like I mean, a major, Fifth Avenue is a major. There's really any minor streets in Manhattan, but like, <laughs> right, this is, I mean, this, this is, is a, you know, Tiffany's and, yeah. And they're all pissed because they're like, yeah. you know, we're not getting foot traffic because of this. And I mean, this is like, you know, the holiday season. Like we need, we need this street to be open. And they said it, in hard dollars, this is not the economic impact of the stores. This is actual cash, a million plus dollars a day yeah. per day that this is costing the city of New York to provide for this security situation. And I mean, holy crap. Yeah. Like, I don't Although, know how many homeless well, people are in New York, but like you could probably make a significant dent with that kind of cash. Oh, yeah. you know and that's I mean? and and that's actually I mean, from what I've read, it's not all that uncommon. And and the government, the US government actually uh refunds cities mm-hmm. for a lot of this, maybe not all of it. Right. And well, I, I just read our tax dollars for that then. They're still using yeah, I mean, our tax dollars. I, I just read an article today that that uh, the city of New York submitted a bill to the U.S. government for like thirty-four million, or fifty-four million, or some some amount like that to recoup yeah. some of these costs up till now. Yeah. But this is going to be an ongoing expense. Yeah, it's but, it's not uncommon during a transition period for wherever the president lives to have that security around his house. But yeah. then when Melania so, wants to stay in Trump Towers while. While uh, Barron's going to school. While Barron's going to school and Trump moves to the White House, that's a different story altogether. Well, I mean, it's, it's fundamentally it's different than a ranch in Texas. Right. And it's not, even, it's not even just that, you know, that Trump or Donald Trump is, is moving to the White House. He intends to return weekly to Trump Tower. He, like, that was his, that was what he communicated to the Secret Service that he wants to spend the weekends at his home. And it's like, well, do you not understand what? What you signed up for, like no, you don't get weekends off. Yeah, this is a full time job in the in the in the you know. Yeah, this isn't a television show, Donald. Right. There's a wonderful article. I think it was the Atlantic. I don't remember now, but there was this wonderful article talking about the day to day life of the president, and it's like five or six years old, but it's it said something that I haven't forgotten, which is that the president does not get days off. It doesn't matter. What, I mean, you know, you hear about them going on vacation and stuff. Like, that's not really what happens. They get a change of scenery, but they work literally every day. There is not a single day that they don't have briefings and decisions to make and work to do. And, I mean, they have time off, but they don't have days off. And, like, they, they have, you know, this, this mobile office, you know, entourage that goes with them literally everywhere so that they can continue to do their job. And if you if you've ever looked at like what goes into the president's motorcade, it's it's absurd. I mean, it's like fifteen vehicles, and like you know, several of them are devoted to communications equipment so that he can be in touch yeah. no matter where he is. And um, you know, one of them is devoted to like anti spy equipment that's all classified. What's actually in it, and like 
you know, they have a couple dummy vehicles and then they have the police escorts and then they have like all of this different stuff. And, you know, when you're at that level of, of responsibility and decision-making and so on, like you, you don't get to just step away from that and go hang out, you know. Well, yeah, you you don't, you don't get to just dump the press corps or the press pool who's supposed to be covering your every move to go have dinner at a fucking steakhouse. Right. Yeah. Although, although technically he can, and technically he can take every weekend right. off. I mean, it, it kind of begs the question. He, he, ne- we've already discussed this. He never wanted this to begin with. Right. You know, he, this was never, and is he just going to hand over the reins to Bannon and Pence and, and whoever he ends up choosing as secretary of state mm-hmm. and, and just be like a, a disconnected president? The celebrity president. Well, the celebrity right. president yeah, who I, shows up in the boardroom every now and then to fire people and uh, yeah but that's that's actually i'm sorry let producers take care of things i was just gonna say real quick though but i'd seen an interview with uh president obama by all people jerry seinfeld on his show where he went to the white house to interview president obama and obama was telling like you said what are you waiting for when you get out of office he's like to be able to be free to be able to do things i want to do because he's telling him like no my whole day is scripted. I am told when I need to be, when I need to be there, for how long I'm there, and it's every 15 minutes here, 10 minutes there, I'm one hour there, then I got to have a call here. He has no control over where he is or what he's doing. Someone else is controlling all that. But, but that's when you have a president who takes a job seriously right. and who, who lives up to those responsibilities. Right. And and that's, to me, that's really the scariest thing about this is that there, there we've been operating for quite some time <laughs> centuries on this assumption that we don't need these things put into law or or have rules for how this is supposed to happen because we assume that the president is going to be interested in taking the job seriously yeah. and will devote to it the needed time and attention and you don't have to force the issue because that's what they want too because that's what they signed up for but you look at you know somebody like this and like uh, there's a similar, like the emoluments clause of the Constitution that has to do with uh, conflicts of interest, and the the founders were exceptionally concerned about any foreign influence on government officials, and you know, as far as business investments or as gifts uh, or or anything that would sway somebody, and there are extraordinarily strict rules. Um, about how diplomats have to handle gifts because gift giving is a major part of diplomacy. And there, I mean, all of these things um, uh, about, you know, how this has to be handled if you're a diplomat, if you're any other politician, but these laws, the emoluments clause specifically does not explicitly list the president himself or herself in that clause under the assumption that this would be obvious. Yeah. <laughs> one one of my biggest hopes is that the next president, yeah. uh, one of their uh, guiding things that is to learn from this and, and make changes in the law to, to limit president, the president themselves. Right. That they, and, that I mean, they, yeah. pa- they propose laws to even limit themselves out of a learning lesson from Trump. Right. And a lot of this has changed recently, too. Um, I mean, that was part of what the Patriot Act and the Patriot Act reauthorization did, uh, you know, following 9-11 was expand the powers of the president rather than leaving as much of it to Congress. Um, and, and, you know, this, this, the separation of powers and, and the balance of it all, and especially with emerging technology, um, 
this this has changed in the last couple of centuries. I mean, part of the major reason that we all vote on a Tuesday is because people had to travel to their voting place in order to do this. That you know, obviously, that's not really the case anymore with cars. But like, a lot of this was set up in a different time with with reasoning that no longer applies, and we are still kind of making tweaks to this. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, during the Kennedy administration about the rules about nuclear weapons. I mean, they, they didn't have a protocol for that in the 1920s or in, or in the 1770s, you know, that wasn't on their mind. Uh, I mean, back then, the most dangerous weapon in existence was a cannon, I suppose, yeah. right? <laughs> um, which, you know, takes a couple minutes to load and fire and can kill maybe five people at once. But like, yeah, I mean, that is just beyond their their ability even to imagine at that point. But yeah, I mean, this is this is in flux. The Constitution itself is a living document. And, you know, I mean, it would take some serious work to make any kind of uh, alterations to that. But, I mean, it's, you know, it's happened 20-something times already, yeah. I mean, you know, to these kinds of clarifications. Or um, and then of course the Supreme Court has to, you know, kind of more clearly delineate exactly where these things change. But um, and the limitations and stuff like that. Right, yeah. right. But yeah, I mean, we've never run into this issue of like, for example, the Congress refusing to vote on a nominee, like oh, to vet no. them and actually do it, you know? We, this has never come up before. And it's like, there's no law that says that they have to do it in a certain amount of time. It's it's really unprecedented not to do it for this long, yeah. but that's this. it's not illegal for them to just delay until the next term. They just decided to do that, and it's like, well, it's actually, there's nothing to stop them, <laughs> it turns out, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, yeah there's there's nothing codifying a rule that says you have to do it in a certain amount of time. Right. And um Well no, and I, this, I really yeah. question whether this was the founders' intent. Oh whether, I think, uh, yeah, with, there's the, no question the, that it wasn't. I mean, you know, if you read about uh some of the, the letters and speeches and things that a lot of these these founders wrote I mean, they were they were very concerned about a couple of things. They were concerned about the president having too much power. They were concerned about monarchies and about uh, foreign nepotism. influence. Yeah, foreign influence was very important to them. Separation of religion and government was extremely important. Um, I mean, I think people kind of forget that. You know, James Madison put that first. I mean, that was the first thing in the in the first item in the bill of rights the entire thing the first thing is freedom of religion like that was that was huge because of of the influence that the church of england had over governance in in england well, and, that, and that was yeah the, the problem with that and the way that it's worded and the way that it's been twisted by so many people like david barton and all of the other right, people on right. the right is that so many people view the phrase freedom of religion as yeah freedom of christianity yeah. Right. They don't yeah. understand that that the that having the freedom of religion necessarily means that you also have the freedom of no religion and that you need to separate them from government. Right. Exactly. And you know, there are plenty of religious people. Barry Lynn comes to mind as an excellent example of this. He's a reverend and you know, he's also the head of Americans United for the Sunday. Yeah, who understands <laughs> right. that you need yeah, to keep the two separate. Of, yeah. Exactly. And you know, I've been to CPAC a couple of times and 
it's really interesting to me because, you know, it's, it's a whole bunch of conservatives and it's people who are really into conservative politics if they're, you know, spending that much money to go to this kind of conference. But like what interested me, you know, cause I was, this is when I still worked for American atheists and we, you know, I was staffing the, the table and two things really shocked me at that conference. Um, the first time I should say that I was there. One was the overwhelming, overwhelming number of atheists there. I had no idea that there were that many people who were that conservative who lacked belief in God. And it's really interesting to me. A, a lot of them are like small business owners or veterans or, or people who are very concerned about other issues than, than religion. They're concerned about taxes. They're concerned about gun ownership. They're concerned about, um, I mean, all sorts of, you know, other, other conservative issues besides things like abortion, besides things like, uh, the, you know, theocratic influence and stuff. And they were extremely happy to see us there um, and saying, like, you know, not all of them were out of the closet, but a lot of them were just like, you know, yeah, like, yes, there are conservative atheists. Actually, there's a lot of conservative <laughs> atheists. It's just, and they're just as upset as we are about the you know the party of of Lincoln becoming this this Christian theocratic circus since the eighties that it that it was never intended to be before that. Um, I, and I then never the other, would have imagined yeah, conservative atheists, no. right? Yeah, I mean, and and there's this you know this rise of of people you know the Jerry Falwell types and everything that that really brought those two camps together the the christians real and there's actually there's a wonderful book so this book is called one nation under god how corporate america invented christian america um and kevin cruz is is the author and it's it's an excellent excellent book he talks about how uh, basically corporate america had these interests <laughs> uh basically having to do with taxes and lobbying and figured out this this insidious method of getting the tax breaks that they wanted and getting the contracts that they wanted and getting the policy that they wanted to benefit their companies, uh, they figured out that if they got Christians to all vote the same way, that they could do pretty much anything else they wanted and that there were enough Christians that that would sway an entire election. As long so, as they could lead them around by the crucifix. Right. So basically what they did is they started, and this started with abortion uh, in the 60s um, and birth control, and it also extended into gay rights and all sorts of other things. But a lot of, I mean, a lot of the, the big figureheads, the, the people you know behind the curtain on a lot of these movements that liberals are just tearing our hair out over are they're funded largely by very rich corporate people um it going you know going back decades i mean uh with the idea being we can get the tax policy we want if we can convince everybody who's anti-abortion to really really care about abortion first of all enough that it becomes a single issue for them to vote on um and then we just have to bribe the republican politicians and pay for their campaigns and you know they run on this thing about being super anti-abortion and you get all these people to say i i refuse to vote for somebody who's pro-choice just bar none that's the only thing i care about or at least you know a necessary condition 
and then you you tell the Republican politicians, okay, I got you in the office. Now you have to you know scratch my back. And it's just it's the biggest scam uh, of the century. But um, but yeah, this this book just nails it and spells it out with with excellent citations and everything. It's really well done. Kevin Cruz, uh, K R U S E is the guy's name. Uh, One Nation Under God is the name of the book. It blows my mind how easy it is. I guess is the word to manipulate people in mass like this. Um, well, yeah. yeah, I mean, when yeah. you've got a bunch of credulous dummies who believe anything that they're told from the pulpit, it's really easy to lead them around, right? right. Well, and, and that's why Hamilton created the Electoral College. Mm-hmm. That that was the original intent of the Electoral College. I mean, what we have now is not at all what Hamilton wanted. Right, but, right. But, you know, he, he knew that, that the uninformed masses could could be influenced and led around like this. Right. And, and the college was supposed to be, you know, wise electors who who would uh, take a cue from the public, but would would vote their conscience uh, about what's in the best interest of the the country, not right. necessarily what what the deluded masses wanted. And I'm so disappointed that Donald Trump actually won the presidency. You know, for the for the longest time, I kept telling myself. No, the majority of Americans aren't that fucking stupid. <laughs> yeah. Not that many people are racist, are bigoted, are xenophobic, are misogynist. They're not going to vote somebody in who openly talks while he's in his 60s about grabbing a woman by her pussy. <laughs> They're not going to vote somebody in who says that Mexicans, that Mexico is sending over their rapists and their drug dealers and Sure, there may be some good ones who come over here. Nobody's going to vote for this fucking clown. And I was so deeply disappointed both in the number of people who actually voted for this fucker and the no- and the people who are just so apathetic to the entire process and stayed home and didn't vote. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, it, to be fair, there are plenty of people who – it's not necessarily that they stayed home because they're apathetic. There are systemic problems that make it very difficult for people to vote. Um, I mean, things like, you know, I mean, if, if you have to wait in line for four hours to vote and I mean, I like, yeah. I'll just use myself as an example here. I went, the polls opened at 6 a.m. where, where I was when I voted and I went at 5.30 because I didn't want to wait in line and I had to wait in line. <laughs> like <laughs> I did. I, I was the 46th person to vote. And I, you know, I got there half an hour before the polls open. Can you imagine if you have two children under the age of four and you are a single mother who works two minimum wage jobs and you obviously care about issues like affordable health insurance mm-hmm. and education and blah, 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 you know, I mean, of course you do, but you simply cannot leave your children unattended while you go vote. You can't wait in line for four hours. I mean, you have to go home and make dinner and take, you know, it's just not, it's not necessarily that people don't care, although I'm sure there are people who genuinely don't. But I I think it's important for us to keep in mind that the system we have set up makes it extraordinarily difficult for people to to do their civic duty and to, even if they want to, and it's not necessarily their own fault in the same way that it's not necessarily the the fault of of people uh, who can't afford college that you know that they never went to college. I mean, the, it's not, we're not set up for that. And in countries where you have compulsory voting, you know, you still don't get a hundred percent turnout because of these types of issues. Although you get you know eighty percent, and that's that's like excellent. But yeah, I mean, 
it is it is very very difficult to get a hundred percent turnout for anything just because life gets in the way. And when you when you make it so that people have to work two jobs to survive, when you make it so that childcare is inaccessible to poor people, when you make it so that there are not enough polling places and the hours are so restricted and the and the number of days that you can go vote are restricted such that it is not possible for you. I, I think that we're we got to be very careful about assigning blame where it doesn't belong on on apathetic Americans versus on a system that that uh, excludes them. I I, I I would agree, but I, I I do think there's blame on both sides. Oh sure, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't mean to imply that there wasn't. Agree. Right. Yeah. Uh, I just I I'm, I don't do mean to it. say that there are people. I mean. And I want to talk for a second about third-party voters because I, I am – so, I mean, I don't know if I want to talk about this. Uh, no, please. Go ahead. So, go ahead. I am – I'll bite my lip. I I used to be much more interested in libertarianism. I was kind of – when I was still a Christian, that was – because I've always been pro-LGBT for – I think obvious reasons. Um, I've, I've, yeah, that was my major because I, you know, the church that I went to was a young earth creationist church, and I, I didn't just go there. I mean, I worked there. It was it was it was my whole life really, and that was where we always butted heads. Is that there were other things we butted heads on, but that was the big one. Was that it wasn't a welcoming church, you know, to use the phrase that they use, and um, that was that was influential in my becoming an atheist. It was. Understanding that there were multiple perspectives on this, and that, and actually, I wrote about this in um, it's called uh, Strange Flesh uh, by Steve Wells, who wrote the Skeptics Annotated Bible. Um, he asked me to write the afterword of that book, and it's it's about homosexuality in the Bible and what what uh, the Old and New Testament has to say, mostly the Old Testament uh, actually has to say about homosexuality, and I wrote in there that. You know, I think that this is the dividing line, that if you are pro-gay or, or gay rights or, you know, marriage equality or any, anything like this, if you do not subscribe to the belief that gay people should be put to death for being gay or, or having gay sex, at least, you know, the way that's worded, if you don't believe that, then you – that's the line. I mean, that's the line. You have to say this book is not completely accurate or at least – this book no longer applies in the present as written. And once you say that, I mean, that's it. You Now you have opened that door to saying what else in here no longer applies, what else in here is metaphor. And because so many people these days, you know, the majority of Americans since May 2013 was when it crossed the 50% threshold, the majority of Americans do support marriage equality. And the way that I see right. it, you know, if you if you accept that, then you have to start questioning everything else about Christianity and well, uh, the Bible at least. Um, if you say that you're getting your truth about what Christianity teaches from some other source in the Bible, then this this argument doesn't apply. But most Christians at least say that the Bible is the basis for their belief. But is it? Because that's not what it says. <laughs> and I can show you in black and white that's not what it says. Uh, but yeah, but this is this is what I wrote about in the afterward. I said. Uh, just bar none. I I do not believe that you can you can call yourself a Bible believing Christian and be pro LGBT. It they they cannot be 
together at once in one mind. They're mutually you, you have exclusive to things. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. If you are pro LGBTQ, you cannot call yourself a Bible believing Christian or you are a hypocrite. And it is my hope reading that book that you are convinced that you can no longer be a Christian on the basis that you reject that belief and you have no real basis for rejecting that and accepting others, except you want to. That was my argument at the end of it. But but yeah, yeah I mean I, I think that yeah I, yeah, I lament the fact that there are still so many so many LGBTQ people within Christianity that they right. act, that they actively follow and believe and prop up and support a system of beliefs that seek to deny them the same rights as everybody else and who treat them as lesser individuals and mm-hmm. they prop it up. It, it's, it's, to me, it's, it's like somebody being in a, in an abusive relationship and they don't seem to be able to see that. Well, I can, I can empathize with the, the perspective that the best way to change things is from the inside. You're, you're not going to change things from the outside. Well, sure. That being but, said, but I, this I is don't, supposed to come from God Almighty. It's, it's God's perfect God word. It's in the book. If you can't, if you can't look at the book and say, this is what the book says, then, and that's the basis of your religion, then why the fuck are you in that religion? And if you have a religious belief, if you have a spiritual belief in God and Christianity or whatever, there are Christian religions who, who are very open to, uh, yeah, there the, are a few. The gay community, the, the Episcopal. There are a few, but they don't follow the Bible either. But they don't follow the Bible. Um, so, no, I don't understand. I can empathize with their their desire to change from the inside. But, uh, no, I, I I could never stay. But it's like trying to change your abusive spouse. It, it yeah. just it doesn't work out very often, <laughs> yeah. you know? If you have questions, comments, concerns, compliments, corrections, or concepts for content, contact the show via email at godlessrevolution at gmail.com, by text or voicemail at 330-81-REBEL, or Twitter the twatter at TGI Podcast. Thanks, bitches. But, I mean, you know, religious belief is not rational. I mean, I think that's that's something worth keeping in mind, is that people don't choose their, they don't, I mean, to a, to a degree, faith is a choice, but when you are convinced that something yeah, is sure. is is true. Um, it's, I mean, I can't, you know, JT Eberhard uses this argument a lot. You know, I can't choose to stop believing in gravity. I am convinced that gravity is a, a thing that exists. And no matter how much I like wish that I could fly, I'm not going to go to the edge of a cliff and step off and have faith. That I, I can't make myself do it because right. Because I am convinced. It's not that I believe this. I am convinced that it's true and I, and that's part of why I believe it. But the, 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 the confidence in this as a fact comes prior to the, the acceptance of it as a belief, I think. And it's the same thing for religious belief that if you are convinced that God exists or that it's impossible that God could not exist, you know, if you think where, you know, where did this all come from if there's no God or, you know, whatever your reason is, uh, if you've never really looked at the logic and the evidence and you, you really, you, you can't imagine God not existing. I don't think that that's like your fault for believing that. And yeah. I can understand somebody trying to square this with saying, well, I'm gay or, you know, my sister is gay or, you know, whatever and saying, I can't help but think that, but believe this. It's not something that like I sat down and decided to believe. It's just, it, it's, I believe I, it's true to me. I can't will myself not to believe it 
Yeah, I mean, when you have absolutely no other frame of reference, it's it's really hard to break out of that shell. You know, when you when right. you don't even know what you don't know, it's hard to get out of that, right? Right. And I think that you know that's that's really. I mean, it's like what is her name the the Nobel Prize winning the young girl who's uh, oh uh, Malala Oh yes, Malala. Thank you. Yeah, I, Malala. I can't remember her name. Thank Malala you, Malala Yousafzai. Uh, yes, thank you. I just it was I was blanking for a second, but you know, it's like she said that you know education is really the key to to ending terrorism and and that's not the, the exact quote was much better but but it was something along those lines of like you know when you educate people you you stop terrorism before it ever happens i mean that's that's the key to this stuff uh there, it's it's not fighting terrorists it's it's stopping them from becoming terrorists and i think it's it's kind of the same way that like it, you know there are some extraordinarily re- educated religious people. I mean, there are, you know, and I don't quite understand how that happens, <laughs> but I mean, like you were talking about before, I think, you know, if it's just something that you're convinced of, it's not necessarily something that you can talk yourself out of, even with facts and so on. But, you know, I, I, I think that James Luther Adams, the Harvard Divinity School professor, is talking about how God doesn't want unexamined faith, I think is, is the way that he worded it. And that that quote was a big stepping stone just for me personally becoming an atheist is that it's I didn't feel like I had permission I guess to well, yeah it allowed you that things. room yeah. right yeah and and when I when I was reading James Luther Adams and and I read this I was like oh man because I I wasn't I wasn't accustomed to the idea that it was not sinful to investigate my beliefs that wasn't okay until then and and when I when I read this I was like because I have all these questions. <laughs> that's, that's an, I've, I've never yeah. heard that quote before, yeah. but that's it's um, an it's an oddly enlightened perspective for for uh, a pastor. Yeah, yeah. He was well. He's paraphrasing Socrates, but oh, okay. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, those those Greeks had it figured out, but uh, <laughs> but yeah. I mean that that was a that was a huge turning point for me was was accepting that it was acceptable to teach myself about some of these things and explore other answers to some of these questions versus what my pastors were telling me. And I just, I'm, I'm thinking back to the day that I told my pastor that I was an atheist because I mean, like I said, you know, I used to work at a church and I, I was a worship musician there, but um, I, this was, this was quite a while, um, a year maybe after I started doing some real investigation. And I had explained to him because at this point I had read Richard Carrier and David Fitzgerald and Karen Armstrong. And I mean, all, all of these books from secular authors and all these contradictions and things. And so I was, what, what happened was I, I asked my pastor to have coffee with me and we talked about all of this and I spent a good hour. I mean, seriously, just laying out everything that I had learned about the translation problems and the contradictions in the different narratives and the, the contradictions with old versus new Testament and, and laying out how, you know, a lot of this seemed to be written at the time as though it was polytheistic and you can see these threads of where it became monotheistic and, and, you know, all of these Catholic councils where they decided all of this policy about, you know, whether they're going to believe in a Trinity or not, or whether they believed and all, all this, I mean, just every, all these arguments that to me were incredibly convincing, except 
I wasn't convinced yet because I needed to talk to him first and get an answer from him. And so I just, I laid it all out and I actually later turned this into a talk. It's a one hour talk called, uh, reliability in the new testament <laughs> but um but i just i i summarized to the best of my ability every single thing that i learned about why christianity cannot be true uh and i was like how how can i still believe this like and i i was serious i really wanted an answer i wanted him to tell me something um very profound that would allow me to continue believing and he just said well, you have to have faith. <laughs> I was like, he just quoted what? George Michael lyrics at you, really? That's, that's, and that's why the like, argument always it. comes back. I just to. have to forget it and just ignore it. I was like, no, I can't do that. Like, I that's that's like, are you are you shitting me? Like, that's your answer. And, you're supposed um, to be like, the learned scholar, the one who leads right, me away right. from yeah, my temptations toward not yeah. believing this. Yeah, well, was, that's that's just, the end result yeah. of of every right. uh, theological discussion I've had with it. It always comes down to you have to have faith. Yeah, you can start out the discussion by saying. We're going to have an in-depth discussion. We're going to try to find out the roots of this. And yeah. I can almost guarantee you that it is going to end with you saying, well, you just have to have faith. Yeah. Right. Or, or and, you have to pray to God. Yeah. Right. You have to pray to God and ask him. Richard Dawkins uh, in The God Delusion says, says that directly, that every argument for God, I mean, you know, there's only, I mean, arguably like 20 of them, you know, all the, the, the different ones that have, that people still use, but that's that's what he says in there is that all of the different arguments for God, when you get down to it, it's every single one boils down to faith. And if you can approach that, you know, I mean, because everybody says like, what's the best argument, you know, that you have for atheism? It's like, well, it's not really like you tell me why you believe and then I'll tell you what's wrong with that. <laughs> you know? uh, but really, if I had to pick one, I would say that faith is not – a, a valid justification for knowledge. That's, I mean, just epistemologically speaking, that's the bottom line. Right. Faith is not a, a proper avenue for knowing what's true and what's false. And most well, and people, it, yeah, it doesn't even yeah. speak to knowledge. It's, it's just what you personally want to believe. Yeah, but I mean, if you if you believe it, you know what you're saying is that you you are holding the position that this is true and knowable, and. You know, I mean, it's it's kind of built into that. Although knowledge is, you know, uh, knowledge is not equal to belief. That's like wishful thinking fallacy. But you know, it, it, they they are very closely integrated when you're talking about faith. What you're what you're claiming when you say you have faith in something in the religious sense, I, I think it's fair to say that you're claiming that this is a, a true, knowable fact about reality, and that you subscribe to that rather than d- denying it. I mean, that's not how I would define faith. I would define faith as as delusion <laughs> that is specific to religious belief um but i mean but i mean that's really what it is faith is 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 belief in something despite a lack of convincing evidence or despite evidence proving it wrong i mean well, that's that's like the dictionary definition and i think that there's that's that about sums it up you know it's well, not true but you choose you you think it is and and you're den- in denial about it not being that way yeah. and uh well, and, and yeah. tying it, tying it in, and, and sorry to get political again, but tying sure. it no, into no, the yeah, election we, we season. Kind of went off there, I yeah. mean, this election season—that's exactly what it was. I mean, it was it was a non-religious but faith-based election season. There was there was no rational thought. There was no 
truth, no facts. It was all faith-based, you know, false news, lies, things well, like yeah, that. It, Just, it goes you know, back to what Newt Gingrich said. It, it doesn't matter what the facts are. Liberals it's about have what, their facts. Yes, yeah, it's about how people feel about things. Yeah, and that's it, what matters. Yeah, and that's actually, I mean, just you know, as somebody who teaches debate and and who and who does formal debates, also, you know, that's something that I harp on a lot when I'm doing workshops on debating. As I say, people, I mean, yes, the facts are extraordinarily important. Don't get me wrong, but how you make people feel is what they will remember. They won't remember the facts. They will remember how you made them feel. And if you make them feel insulted or that you think you're superior or, you know, anything like that, they're going to, they're, they're going to remember and, and put a slant, a negative slant on everything that you said. But and, I am yeah. superior. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, that's, that's something that I talk about a lot, though, is that I say, you know, it's very important to have a really developed sense of humor when you do a formal debate, even if the subject isn't funny, because it's a way to be personable with people. And I, I talk about this a lot about how to craft relevant jokes and things that aren't mocking, that aren't separating an in-group from an out-group type of that type of humor, because there's a lot of humor that uh, arguably all humor does that in a way it separates an in-group from an out-group. But there's this guy I follow on Twitter who is, uh, he's actually a lawyer now, but he also has a PhD and he's got it. And he, he did his dissertation about humor and he talked about this in his dissertation. That was, I mean, that was the whole thing about was humor. I, I don't mean, I don't, I don't make a habit of like reading dissertations, but, <laughs> but I posted this guy's dissertation because I was like, I remember this and this is really well done. But yeah, I mean, what he talked about in there was this was back when Trump said that he was just, just joking about the second amendment folks being able to take care of Hillary. And he's like, there's no such thing as just joking. What, what just joking is, is he said something that sends a signal to people that are on his side of this. And he's, he's, looking for buy-in. He's looking for acceptance of this, that this is acceptable, this is okay, that this is something that you can agree with. And then when you say you're just joking, what he's asking you to do is accept that this is acceptable. He's asking you to be part of this in-group, even just by proxy. But he's saying that's what these that's what jokes do. And he said this is what all humor does. I mean just every type of joke, when you're making fun of something, there's there's it separates in groups from out groups and that's its purpose. It's a social act that you do between groups of people, whether they're physically present or not. And the the point is you are dividing out people who think that this is funny and people who think that this is not funny because it's not cool. You know, it's it's not an, it's not an acceptable thing to say. Right. And and that's what he was doing was he was – when he said, I'm just joking, all the people who were like, okay, I don't think it's funny, but all right, ha, ha, okay, fine. You know, what he was doing was he was asking us to say that is an acceptable thing for you to say, even if, even if we don't personally laugh, you know. But anyway, it's – Oh, yeah, seeking acceptance is, yeah. through, through right. throwing something out there and hoping that it sticks and hoping yeah. that people will climb on board. right. And, uh, oh, man, there was this excellent tweet that somebody sent out right when that happened. And they said, women know just joking guy. We know him real well. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's so good. Um, yeah. Well, you have been incredibly generous with your time. Thank you so much. Um, oh, I'm so happy to be on. Yeah. But I know that you have some writing to do this evening. And yes. I know you've been contacted by hordes of other press. So. <laughs> Uh, we will let you go. But before we do, uh, if somebody wanted to contact you for anything, how would they go about doing that? 
Uh, if you would like to follow me on Facebook, I would love for you to do that. My Facebook profile is just facebook.com slash Danielle Moscato. I also have a Facebook page uh, that I post more strictly activism stuff and less, you know, kind of personal shit the shit type stuff. Uh, if you're just interested in my activism, you're certainly welcome to follow both. But my page, which is devoted to activism, is at uh, facebook.com slash Daniel Moscato dot page. And if you just search for my name, you'll find them both. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Danielle Moscato. Um, and I'm really close to 100,000. I would love for you to follow me. That would be really <laughs> cool. And uh, yeah, and you're also welcome. I, I love hearing from people. I've got, I mean, I'm sitting on literally 10,000 emails right now, but uh, I would love to hear from people. If you would like to chat with me and, and you don't want to do it through social media, you are absolutely welcome to email me personally. Um, my email address is on my website at daniellemoscato.com or you can just email me danielle at daniellemoscato.com. Yeah, I, I'm really thrilled to be on this show, and, and I would love to hear from your listeners, and, and it's so great to chat with you guys. Um, I'm really glad that, that we finally got to do this, so thank you. <laughs> yeah, me too, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really, really appreciate it. Like I said, you've been incredibly generous with your time tonight. Thank you thank so, you. so much. I, I did want to put in a, a quick plug, and this is you know totally optional for people, and, and if, if you feel so inspired to do so, I would be very grateful, but um, I, I was... Uh, asked by many people uh, over the weekend to create a Patreon, uh, which I have done. And I, I just want to say this is my, my full-time job is activism and writing and public speaking and so on. And uh, if you would like to support me on Patreon, I would be extremely thrilled with that. Uh, and you just, it's patreon.com slash Danielle Moscato. If you are, if you are interested in, in doing that, that would be wonderful too. Fantastic. Yeah, I will be sure to put sh uh, links to that in the show notes for your Facebook, Twitter, and your new Patreon account. And once great. again, thank you so, so much. I really, thank really you. appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's great being on. High on a hill was a lonely goat herd. Yodelay, yodelay, yodelay. One, two, three, four. 67, One, two, 69. Three, four. You know, the square root of 69 is eight something. <laughs> I want to remember that I one. I did not know that. I, I got that. I got that from Drake. So. That's 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 good. Who says rap music's good for nothing? I got way too much shit going on, man. Okay. I have no idea what's going on around here. <laughs> I have no responsibility here whatsoever. <laughs> Yeah, I, I've got so much more to say. I just, I've got to. <laughs> I know, I, I could go on for hours here. Yeah, don't be There's so many things I didn't say that I just kind of mental notes. Oh, and, man, we, we brought up third-party voters. We didn't even We didn't it. even talk about Oh, the oh, shit man, I could say about show. third parties. Yeah. Oh. Well, should we do a quick close to the show? If, if you want. Or should we just kind of leave it at the end of the interview? And uh, If we do a little close, we've got to keep it short because we're... I'm trying to keep us that strict two hours. Yeah. I, I think we can just leave it at the end of the interview, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, that'd be good. And I, I can just close out with one of those little things. Meg splices. And yeah. Yeah, that'll work. Batman. Are we still recording this shit? I think so. Uh -oh.